tell me as we begin to read in this passage of Scripture in Judges chapter 2, as we read it, I want you to think about the times we're in now and see if it's not similar. Please stand for the reading of the Word of the Lord. We're going to pick up at verse 8 of chapter 2. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of his inheritance at Timnath, Heres, in the mountains of Ephraim, on the north side of Mount Gaash. When all the generations had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity. And as the Lord had said, as the Lord had sworn to them, he did this in Leviticus, and they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, nevertheless, everyone say nevertheless. Great verse here. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. That'll be our text. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word. God, without it, we'd be lost. It's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And Lord, I pray that all who would be present today and at the rebroadcast of this, their lives would be deeply touched and inspired by your word that is living and breathing and sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Lord, we're a people in distress. I think of the folks that gathered around David in the cave of Elam. They were indebted and distressed and discontented. Well, Lord, that would, be, that would be the entire cabinet of David as he would rule as king. In that obscure cave, those who were indebted, distressed, and discontented changed the land of Israel forever. God, take this group of folks in this room, and I pray that you do the same. Lord, that we rebuild what's in front of us, that we would not consider our ability, but we would extend our availability. And God, you would work a mighty work in our lives. Speak to us through the book of Judges. Empower us and encourage us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, have a seat, please. I was, I was deeply touched by uh, last week's time, and, and I, I, like many of you, was choked up. I, I was thinking about Jim's generation, and, and as Tom Brokaw said, the, the greatest generation. And I, I took on my Kindle on the flight back from North Carolina, the book by Tom Brokaw, and I began to scan through it. I didn't read it completely, but I pulled out some nuggets that really touched me. Because I wanted to contrast why that generation was so amazing. I've shared this story with you about my godfather, who, who said to me in the midst of the, the primary campaign, he just I was whining and lamenting the situation, and he said to me with a booming voice, quit whining. He said, Rob, and he was the, the highest ranking survivor of the attack on Pearl Harbor, and he just said, Rob, I was 16 years old in the Great Depression. We didn't know where our next meal was going to come from. Had it not been an appointment to the Naval Academy, I would have never received a college degree. 
I was in Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, my, my godfather said. He said, we had the 17th largest military on the face of the earth. We were in isolationist mode. He said, that day they sank half our Pacific fleet. They sank my ship. The harbor was on fire and my shipmates were dead and I pulled them out of the water. He said, the next day we took on a two-fronted war against two fascist nations, Germany and Japan. We lifted that fleet from the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. We refitted it. We brought both of those fascist nations to their knees. We floated that same fleet back into Tokyo Harbor to accept the surrender of the Japanese. We weren't occupiers. We were liberators. When we left, we only asked for enough ground to bury our dead. We established representative forms of government in both of those nations. We came back to the United States, cut federal spending by 50%, and started the greatest industrial revolution in the history of the world. He said it with a firm voice. He looked at me and says, now quit whining. Go finish what you started. And I think about the GI Bill. That generation received this GI Bill. All these, these men and women came back from serving our military forces. They came back, and the government extended them a college education on the GI Bill. It's been calculated that for every dollar the government invested in the lives of these men and women that came back from World War II, the return was 100 to 1 in, in favor for the United States. These men and women went on to build industry. These men and women went on to change the nation, the greatest industrial revolution in the history of our nation, the greatest uh, am um, amassing of wealth of any society in the history of the world. It was the greatest generation. Tom Brokaw listed a number of things in regards to this generation that I want us to glean from. One is, he said, the reason why this generation was so profound and so powerful is because they took personal responsibility for their life. Our generations are entitled I was the baby boomer generation. I got to experience college because their generation made it possible. Generation X, Generation Y, the millennials, they're all waiting for the handout. All of us have some sort of government subsidy we receive. The reality is I've been paying into Social Security the entirety of my life, and I'm probably not going to see a dime of it. We've allowed representatives to pilfer that. As the scripture says that we read in Judges chapter 2 that, that we've been plundered. We're $19 trillion in debt. A child is born. I heard from a couple today, we're pregnant. Great. When that baby's born, it'll be $108,000 in debt. Never have done a thing. And it has hundred and eight. What an inheritance we've left them. We've been plundered. The foundations are destroyed. You pray as a football coach after a game, on the field, voluntarily, and you're suspended. We're plundered. Inalienable rights endowed by our Creator. We studied these in the previous studies, and we've gone through the First Amendment, and the purpose of the First Amendment is to protect ourselves from our representatives, and the pulpits are silent, and the press is owned. We're plundered. We've been despoiled. We've been delivered into the hands of the enemy. Another plane goes down. Another terrorist attack here. Our men and women fought in Fallujah and they fought all over. All those areas are gone. Chaos reigns. The Arab Spring is just a, a mess. Our lines are longer. Our economy's in danger. We look and we think, what do we do? Well, this generation took personal responsibility. We want to blame everybody. We blame everyone. These men and women took Responsibility for their own lives. And, and part of the thing that was so impressive to me, Tom Brokaw wrote, 
when the greatest generation accepted responsibility for something, they also accepted all the consequences of that decision, whether good or bad. They were not a generation of whiners and excuse makers. They took pride in personal accountability. We hide our sin. They lived openly. Their public life was the same as their private life, and their private life was the same as their public life. The greatest generation, the second lesson that Tom Brokaw spoke of, is he said they were frugal. My godfather was tighter than a tambourine. That man had alligator arms. Let me get that bill. I never saw him pay for a meal until he was in his late 90s. And he, I watched it. He was healed. It's like, oh. my mother was already passed away. She's rolling in her grave going, oh, my goodness. Let me get that. Michelle and I were both like, oh, oh. hell is frozen over. He had outlived his first wife and, and married his second wife and, and she said, can we get a new spatula? And this thing was just, it was old. It melted on the corners. He said, does it still work? Well, yes, but it's ugly. We don't need another one. Tom Brokaw spoke of the motto of the greatest generation. He says, use it up, wear it out, make it do or do without. That's not us. It's out of style. I'm going to get another one. We are a consumer generation. We're captivated by our consumption. They were a humble generation, Tom Brokaw wrote. This is true. Typical greatest generation is the story of a son or daughter who finds the war medals in the attic when the parent dies. Didn't even know to what extent they'd served. One of the last survivors of, of the raising of the flag of Mount Suribachi was a corpsman in the Navy. His son found the box of medals and didn't even know his dad was in that photograph. I remember my friend Jess Humphrey. His dad was older because Jess was the youngest of six kids. I was the youngest of four. We had that in common, older parents. We had been born late in their life. Jess's dad had graduated magna cum laude from Harvard University Law School. I didn't even know it. He never talked about it. Never practiced law. He just graduated with it. He's a neat man. And, and we were going through all the stuff in the backyard. After, uh, not, his father hadn't passed, but we were just cleaning it out. We come across his, his diploma. It's all dog-eared and torn. He goes, I'll just throw it away. Just saved it. And in the box was a picture from a different angle of the raising of the flag of Mount Suribachi. He was an eyewitness. He was a second lieutenant on Iwo Jima. He had the bronze star and the silver star. Nobody knew that. They never bragged about it. We want to get that medal and, and, and run for office. They never talked about it. You couldn't get it out of them. My father never spoke of Vietnam. Never. I think of Bob Wilson who comes to our church. I shared a message one time about my father, how he struggled over launching, uh, launching, launching rockets off of a bobtail cat cruiser in Vietnam into hamlets to protect our soldiers as they were calling for fire support because they were being overrun by the enemy and how civilians died. My dad struggled over that his whole life. Bob came up and he was choked up and he just said, I remember when they told me to send tracer bullets on an incoming boat and I knew it was a fishing vessel. I can't get that out of my head. 
Probably the first time in his life he'd ever shared that. He sobbed like a young man. These men and women came back and they changed the world. They were humble. They loved loyalty and still do, those who are with us. Tom Brokaw says, the men and women of the greatest generation took their marriage vows seriously. Brokaw wrote, it was the last generation in which, broadly speaking, marriage was a commitment and divorce was not an option. I can't remember one of my parents' friends who was divorced. Out of all the new marriages in 1940, and and there was a plethora of new marriages, and they just came back, and that was the whole thing. I just want to start life again. I've seen death. I want to start life again. Marriages just bloomed, and so did babies. And of all the new marriages beginning in 1940 up through that era, only one in six ended in divorce. Today, it's, it's one in two. We're not a faithful generation. They were. Tom Brokaw wrote, this was a time where there was no hanging out or hooking up. Men asked women on real dates and had serious intentions in doing so. When a particular woman caught a man's heart, he proposed, and they got married. And they were married for the next 60 years. I remember when I worked at an apartment complex in Coronado that was for the elderly and the man named Sal and his wife, I think it was Irma, I can't remember. Uh, they'd been married 67 years. And I said, how'd you guys meet? Tell me about this love story. And they said it was an arranged marriage. I'd never met her. I go, how'd you stay married for 67 years? He said divorce wasn't an option. We didn't want to kill each other. And they were the cutest couple. They were adorable. And they were faithful. And they experienced 67 years together up to that point. I was mesmerized by them. Watch them at the pool. They were adorable. And this was their generation, faithful. The other thing Tom Brokaw wrote, there are seven things. This is the fifth of seven. They worked hard. When they got home, they carried that focus over to the world of work. They didn't fall into the fallacy Uh, Mike Rowe has been busy denouncing that you have to find your passion to be happy. I love dirty jobs. Mike Rowe just says, you don't have to find your passion to be happy. You don't have to find your passion to be happy. They could find happiness in any job they did because they weren't just working for personal self-fulfillment. They labored for a bigger purpose. To give their families the financial security that they didn't enjoy growing up. We work because we want to find ourselves. They work to provide. That's beneath me. Really? It doesn't pay enough. I deserve more. Really? This is a generation of entitlement. It's all about me. This greatest generation, the other one, number six, is they embraced challenge. The greatest generation wasn't the greatest despite challenges they faced, but because of them. Today, many men and women shrink or shirk challenge in difficult pursuits, believing that the easier life is the happier life. Like a twig on the banks of a mighty river, we just go with the flow. I just, I, I don't like opposition. I just want I to, don't, I don't want conflict. That's, that's hard. I, I just want to play my Xbox and get a pension. I've read the Bible, retirement's not in there. You may have a pension, but you have work to do. You're given that so you can take all the wisdom you've earned and pour it into the next generation, not so you can drive around the country in a Winnebago. No offense. I just insulted my in-laws. But they stopped, and they, they get it. 
And they have, they've had a burden for the Lord in these last seasons of their life, and they're pouring in. And finally, the greatest generation was defined, and I love this, what Tom Brokaw said. Don't make life so damn complicated. He said it. I'm just quoting it. The bastard said damn. <laughs> Tom Brokaw writes, in our day when men are obsessed about finding themselves, their holy grail of a woman or their passion and the greatest generation's uncomplicated approach to life is refreshing. They didn't go on a diet. They simply ate good food. They didn't exercise. They worked around the house. They didn't obsess about their relationships. They just found a man or a woman they loved and they married them. They always looked sharp but never fussed with fashion trends. They didn't mull over with appliances better suited for their personality or image. They just bought the machine that worked the best. It's an amazing generation, one in which I can't relate. I'm, I'm of the consumer generation. I'm of the debt generation. Buying things with money I don't have to impress people I don't know with things I don't need. We buy and we buy and we buy and we buy. And we're indebted, distressed, and discontented. And we watch as the foundations are destroyed. And I see this and I contrast it with Generation X, Y, and Millennials all the way down the line. The majority of those present in the room today Fascinating to me, there was a study done by Berenda and Associates. Berenda and Associates did this study with the X generation, and they Generation X, and they, they, they took 10 children, they put them in a room. Nine of the children were in on the gig. One, the one child didn't know what was going on. And, and they, they did it with junior hires, and they did it with high schoolers, and they put the 10 children in the room, nine of them were in on the gig, and one of them wasn't. And the teacher would come in and draw three lines on the board, a long one, a medium one, and a short one. And the teacher would say, please pay attention. When I point to the longest line, I want you all to raise your hand. Again, let me repeat. When I point to the longest line, I want you all to raise your hand. When you see me pointing to the longest line, what are you going to do, children? We're going to raise our hand. So we all understand that when I point to the longest line, you raise your hand? Yes. What if I point to the shortest line? We don't raise our hand. When I point to the longest line, we raise our hand. Okay, kids, here we go. And the teacher pointed to the shortest line. And the nine kids raised their hand. And the one kid went. Over 78% of the time. It's a generation that would forsake what they knew was right in order to fit in. We just want to be relevant. There's no absolutes. It's all subjective. I'll get along with the other nine. Why not raise my hand? Ah! And so we compromise the truth for the sake of fitting in. Well, that's judges. There were no kings in the land. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. I just want to fit in. More than 75% of the kids would raise their hand even though they knew it was wrong. Contrast that with the greatest generation that stood in the face of odds so overwhelming and so daunting, taking on a two-fronted war against fascist nations geared for war, and half their Pacific fleet was sunk. They'd just come out of the Great Depression. They were broke. They'd have two nickels to rub together. But they knew what was right. They knew what was wrong. They stood upon morality. They stood upon a foundation that when you marry someone, you don't divorce them. 
It's for life. And if you don't need it, you don't buy it. And you take personal responsibility, and no one is responsible for you but yourself. And all these folks saying, I'm just going to get along to get along. More than 75% raise their hand in that generation. And that is the book of Judges. That is the book of Judges. They forsake God to go along with Baal and Ashtoreth. Baal was the god of, of the harvest. Worshipped by the Canaanites. You contrast that with Molech. And, and for the sake of financial prosperity, they take the hands of Molech and they would make them molten red and heated. And they take their young children and put the baby on the hands and, and burn and kill the child for the sake of financial prosperity. We go, wow, that's awful. We don't do that. 60 million babies aborted in America. Well, that's not abortion. It's a, oh, raise your hand. Join the other nine. Really? The scriptures I read say it's been fearfully and wonderfully made. That's a child knitted together in its mother's womb. Jesus leapt in the womb when, when John the Baptist was in the womb of Elizabeth. That's just a blob of tissue? Well, I don't want anyone to be angry with me. To stand in opposition, the odds are against you. There's no foundation. There's no backbone. There's, there's no moral fortitude. And this is where we are in the book of Judges. This is where we are. We've been plundered. We've been despoiled. We've been delivered into the hands of the enemy. And we've engaged. You have Baal. How about Ashtoreth? Ashtoreth was a multi-breasted god, a figurine, and they would worship for the sake of, of sexual promiscuity. And they would engage in this. And they, just, they just replaced God with gods. Small g. And the idea is they just took their sin and they deified it. It's not abortion. It's a choice. It's not adultery. It's an affair. You dress up for affairs. We just deify it. We just deify it. We spend our time, treasures, and talents running after it. Whatever we worship, we become like it. And God says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Come to me, all you who are burdened, heavy laden. Aren't you tired of Ashtoreth yet, or Baal, or Molech? And they would cry out, and they'd be so despondent and so overwhelmed, and they'd watch as their actions and the things that they would do would destroy their country. They'd watch as the enemies would invade them and their debt would rise and all these things would implode around them. And they finally just say, what can we do? Rebuild the foundation. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. Upon this rock, I will build my church. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not changing. There's no shadow in his turning. His word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. His word is true. It's living. It's breathing. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides the thoughts and the intents of the heart. It should be in your home as you rebuild the foundation in front of your house. It should be in the foundation of your children as you build them to, to proceed into a future you'll never see. I don't have time to read. I'm running after Baal. I've got to get the harvest in. I don't have time to read with my kids or pray with them. I never read with my mom and dad. I don't ever remember praying with them except for dinner with some crazy memorized prayer. They had morals. 
but they neglected to give them to the next generation. And as the scripture says, as we've been reading in this passage of scripture, verse 10, when all the generation gathered to their fathers, another generation rose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done in Israel. None of those stories are transferred. We have an entire generation of young kids have never heard the story of General Washington. A divine providence on his life. We've never heard of that. We don't, we don't know about any of these things. We don't know how the history of this representative form of government came about. We don't know what the Magna Carta is. We don't know what Lex Rex. We don't know Samuel Rutherford. We don't know any of that. We're lost. The foundation's destroyed. Well, it's time to rebuild it. Invest. Pour into their lives. Study yourself. Learn these things. Fix the wall in front of your home. I don't, I don't want to hear whining about the billions of starfish on the beach. Throw the one back in front of you. Fix it. In your lifetime, you can leave a place better than you found it. This is doable in our lifetime. There's schools that need to be touched. There's sports teams that need to be touched. There's lives that need to be invested in. I've told you, there's a 1,000 kids in the foster program. That can be wiped out in one year. If you just, if you just clear out that room that you have the exercise equipment that you bought that you never use that you're hanging your laundry on. You got to take some classes in foster care. And we can fix this. An entire generation will be raised in a home with godly principles that have been devastated by the malaise and the misery of us going after Baal and Ashtoreth. But we'd rather decry and lament the situation and blame all the people out there that are destroying it. We create the monster and we decry its existence. We struggle over, you know, what's going on with the transgender and the, and, and the homosexual community and all these things. Where, where did that come from? We don't have two-parent homes. How does a man or a woman associate with a parent who's missing? And the deviance. We just, we just funnel in pornography and everybody gets warped. How do we fix it? One brick at a time. Right where you are. But we'd rather look at everything and say, well, they're the problem. Okay, so they're the problem. What's the solution? Oh, I don't know, but they're the problem. I heard you, but what's the solution? Well, I don't know, but I, I, the, the, the foundation's destroyed. What will the righteous do? Get off your butt and put a brick up. Rebuild it. I said butt, too. I'm really in trouble. I'm sorry. That's what we're called to. We have a generation that needs vision. You can sit and whine about it like half the people in Ezra. Or you can rejoice because you're building and you're participating. Psalm 71 says, Oh God, you have taught me from my youth, and to this day I declare your wondrous works. Now also when I am old and gray-headed, oh God, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation your power to everyone who is to come. Okay, I'm gray, I'm in. Some of you, you're as old as I am, you're gray, but you're dying, your hair. We have work to do. We have to teach the next generation. What are you doing? What are you doing? There's reading programs, Bible clubs. There's quads. There's young mothers that really could use some help, some insights. What are you doing? What are you doing? Whining isn't doing anything. 
Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 22, the Lord says, So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it. But I found no one. I'm thinking, Lord, there's a room of people right here that will do that. I know them. Every man and woman in this room is worth their weight in gold. Lord, I've seen what they can do. I want our city to be a model for that. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 59, he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him and his own righteousness that sustained him. God will do for you what you can't do for yourself. You may not be able, but if you're willing, he'll make you able. Don't be apathetic because you don't think you have the gifting. God will equip you. And then finally, 2 Chronicles 16. We know this one. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. You realize right now he's looking in this room for the man or the woman who says, here my Lord, use me. I'm tired of whining. I want to step up my game. I want to be effective in the kingdom of God. I want to build the wall in front of my house. And the beauty of the passage, and I close with this, the beauty of the passage, we'll cover 12 of the 15 in our studies together. But they're men and women, and the coolest thing about them is they're all screwed up. And I'm looking around the room, and I think we qualify. I mean, they put the fun in dysfunction. And you're going to see yourself in every one of them in some way, shape, or form. And I pray that it will inspire you. I remember hearing Chuck Smith share. For those of you who think it's too late, you need to quit whining. Corey Tenboom started her ministry at 70 years of age. Charles Spurgeon started at 19. The Apostle John at 16. I think of Chuck Smith who started the Calvary Chapel movement. And I remember some of the pastors lamenting and just saying, you know, Chuck, you've accomplished so much. Uh, we're limited in what's left in our life. How are we going to do? And he goes, whoa, 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 whoa. He said, I was 46 years old. And the largest congregation I had at 46 years of age was 26 elderly folks in a home study. And God got a hold of my heart. He said, it wasn't until I was 51 years old that it really started to take off. Today, the Calvary Chapel system of churches sits over $250 million in assets, planted over 1,600 churches around the world. Four of the 10 largest churches in America are Calvary Chapels. They have the Harvest Crusades of Greg Laurie. And the work that God did in and through that man with 10,000% growth, and it wasn't transfer growth, it was conversion growth, and it was salvation. And it started when he was 51. I'm 51. I got more than 26 elderly folks. I got a room full of gold. And I really want to set a precedent. In the last service, CBN, Christian Broadcasting Network, 700 Club, David Brody was in the last service. He's filming. He's doing a whole thing on our church because of what this little fellowship has done around the world. And if you haven't participated in our American Renewal Project events, I want to invite you. You can. You sign up with Joe after this. And when you come back, I want you to be ready to build the wall in front of your house because we've got work to do.
Amen? That's it, I'm finished. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And truly, God, when your word declares if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And I am so thankful to declare we rebuild the foundations as they did in Ezra. Half the people will lament that it's not as beautiful as it was when it was first built, but that's all right. The young people are going to be thrilled. And Lord, may we set an example for them and encourage them and be a blessing to them. And Lord, as your eyes go to and fro this day in this congregation, I pray that you'd encourage and bless all who are present, that they would realize, I want to be one of those folks that rebuilds and restores and encourages and leads and guides. As you provided for the children of Israel, you'll provide for the folks in this community. And help us, God, to rebuild what's in front of our house. Lord, give us that vision that we wouldn't be in despair. Bless and encourage, I pray, and we thank you for your word that's brought comfort to our heart this day in Jesus' name. Amen.